Double Booked, your place for book recommendations, literary critiques, and reading banter by librarians Erin Driscoll, that's me, and Charlotte Wood. Hello. Um, we would like to thank WCTV Studios for the use of their equipment. Um, and today's episode, episode six, focuses on women in history in honor of Women's History Month in March. Um, and Charlotte has a little background on how this month uh, came to be. Right, because I, I really didn't have any idea. So, of course, I used Google and found out the following, that Women's History Month began as a local celebration in Santa Rosa, California. The Education Task Force of the Sonoma County Commission on the Status of Women uh, planned and executed a Women's History Week uh, celebration in 1978. And they selected the week of March 8th uh, to correspond to International Women's Day. And the movement spread across the country. So the following year, there were several other uh, cities that held a Women's History Week. And about 10 years later, in 1987, Congress passed a law designating March as Women's History Month. And each year, presidents proclaim the month as such. And the other thing I found out is that uh, there's always a theme. And this year's theme is women providing healing and promoting hope, which... Um, leads me right into my first book. When we decided to focus on uh, women in history, I knew there was a book called The Doctor's Blackwell that I had not read, and I thought, you know, I'd really like to read it and uh, see if I would like to include it in today's podcast. And I'm very glad, very glad I read it. And uh, so The Doctor's Blackwell by Janice P. Namura is about two sisters, Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell, who were the first and third women in America to receive medical degrees. Uh, Elizabeth received hers in 1849, and Emily, who was six years younger, received hers um, a few years later. Uh, they went on, on to found the hospital, uh, first hospital staffed by women in New York City. It was called the Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children. Mm -hmm. uh, it, not only is there a story of determination in pursuing medicine, um, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating to me, but they were up uh, against a number of obstacles, uh, mainly uh, the societal pressure to conform to what women should be. And, but the sisters uh, were from a family of nine children, five girls and four boys, and none of the sisters married. Uh, all were well-educated. They came from a home of Protestant dissenters who were advocates for education, hard work, and self-improvement for both sexes. And all the children but the last uh, were born in Bristol, England, and they migrated to America in the early 1830s. But the women in that family all sort of were determined to live their lives independent of what society felt they should do. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth decided early on, she decided she wanted to pursue medicine, and she was not uh, you know, dissuaded by all the obstacles that she faced. Uh, she was turned away from all medical schools that she applied to, but the Geneva College um, in, New York's, in New York decided to allow the male student body to vote whether or not to admit Elizabeth, and they voted to let her attend. Uh, she was seen by almost everyone uh, in the community as an anomaly, as if there was something must be off or different about her, <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, wanting to do this. Yeah. But eventually she was accepted by her peers. I mean, she kind of stood apart. She made sure she, uh, you know, was, um, uh, you know, not pushy. She, she kind of, but held her place. And um, she, and then she re you know, received her degree. Um, but it was an uphill battle. And her sister, Emily, 
uh, received many rejections before being admitted to the Rush Medical College in Chicago, uh, receiving her degree in 1854. Um, and you know, during this period, uh, medicine was part science, part quackery. <laughs> they really didn't understand the underpinnings of illness or how to treat most ailments. You know, good hygiene wasn't practiced. Right. Uh, so it was really, a, it was not a, a real pleasant experience attending medical school. No, a grim time. <laughs> a grim time. Yeah, it was a pretty grim time. Um, but the other fascinating aspect of this book is the intersection of Elizabeth and Emily's lives with the likes of Florence Nightingale, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Lady Byron, and Lucy Stone, who was a woman's uh, right advocate uh, and also became their sister-in-law. But their lives intersected with all these women, and they corresponded with them and became friends with them. Um, so it was um, you know, a, a really interesting book uh, as far as the history went uh, and the doctors' lives. Uh, by the time they both died in 1910, they died six months um, uh, from each other, uh, there were 9,000 women doctors in the U.S., which was about 6%. Oh, wow. And today, uh, women make up half of the medical school um, uh, uh, you know, attendees. Attend attendees. Yes, right. Thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Erin. Yes. <laughs> so it was really very fascinating. Again, that was The Doctors Blackwell by Janice Namura. Wow. Um, so my first recommendation brings us a little, a couple decades past that, um, into the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. Um, I was not a good history student in school, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had good grades, but I, you know, memorized the dates and names and then immediately forgot them once the semester was over. Uh, so since school, I've been kind of trying to make up for that by listening to audiobooks and, and podcasts that kind of shine a light on areas of history that I neglected in, in my younger, in my youth. Um, <laughs> I especially love history when it intersects with uh, one of my other loves, true crime or like a legal drama. So I've, I've noticed that all of my recommendations today <laughs> kind of fall under that umbrella. They all kind of touch upon that kind of... Uh, We're going to kill two birds with yes. one stone. Yes. <laughs> um, so the first book I have to recommend is The Women's Hour by Elaine Weiss. Uh, it follows... Um, three women as they are converging on Tennessee in, I think it was July 1920. Um, the Tennessee at the time was the last state needed to ratify the 19th Amendment, which would give women the vote, uh, or I should say white women the right to vote. Um, and so it follows Carrie Catt, uh, who's the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, uh, Alice Paul, who led the uh, much more radical uh, National Women's Party, and Josephine Pearson, um, who led the anti-group um, that fought against ratification, uh, which is right. wild to think yeah, about today. Yeah, it is today. wild because you think everyone, all, you know, all, everyone's in the same camp, but they're not. No. Uh, not then and not now. That's, yeah. yeah. No, not, not all women were on board for, no. for ratification mm -mm. Um, at all. And I just found this book just, like, utterly engrossing. Um, it does, you know, it covers a lot of backstory. It has a lot of names, a lot of dates, um, but it also has, you know, kidnapping attempts and <laughs> <laughs> betrayal and libel and bribery and just lots and lots of like free flowing prohibition era booze, <laughs> um, which especially the antis used to convince huh. um, like these these senators to be these Congress people to be on their side. Were they bribing them with it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> yes, they would have mm. these like, 
these Parties. salons. Here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it also goes back uh, a little further and looks at kind of the roots of the women's movement, um, more along the, um, you know, the Doctors Blackwell mm-hmm. time. Um, you know, it looks at figures like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, who kind of started the the women's movement in the U.S. Um, and the author doesn't shy away too from the fact that those women, um, while they were initially really unified with uh, the abolitionist movement, um, kind of would end up betraying the abolitionists and distancing themselves because mm-hmm. they they saw that there was an easier path forward for gender equality for white women if they weren't closely tied to racial equality mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, so, you know, she doesn't doesn't shy away from that right. that fact. Yeah, you know what's interesting is uh, the doctors, Blackwell, well, Elizabeth especially, but Emily also felt the same way, that neither were supporters of the women's, right, women's rights movement. Um, Elizabeth felt strongly that the problem was not the, she said, the tyranny of men, but the disappointing weakness of women. It was more important to prove the capabilities of women and show them the way forward. And uh, that's how they felt. They didn't really, they were invited several times to sort of embrace the movement or become spokeswomen for the movement. And neither one of them uh, wanted any part of it. They really didn't sort of believe in the cause. They thought it was kind of wasted energy. And again, like I said, their sister-in-law, Lucy Stone, was uh, very much part of the movement. Um, But they accepted her, but they... They themselves did not, they felt that they could lead more by their example than getting involved in a, a movement. Yeah, and you see yeah. that division like time and again in mm-hmm. the, the women's rights movement. Um, you know, even later, like my one of my later recommendations takes place kind of in the 70s around the time of the you know, 60s and 70s Equal Rights Amendment and, you know, the, the divisions then and in, in people that were, were for and against right, it. Right, there and, were, yeah. Um, right. But I liked I, I wrote down a quote from uh, the book, The Women's Hour. Um, Everything the cause had accomplished, every state won, every piece of legislation, every change of heart and shift in policy was once considered utterly impossible until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. Right. It also makes me think, you know, my grandparents were born in the 1870s. And so I had grandmothers that were living in America during that time. Uh, they were both um, died before I was born. Well, when I was about three months old, but I didn't know either one of them. But it makes me wonder, uh, what what side were they on back then? You know, you don't think of it, uh, you know, in terms of your own family. But yeah. we all had family members living at that time that were, yeah, maybe involved or not. Yes, yeah. I know it. It's I had you know great aunts that kind of snuckily uh, learned to drive uh, without their family's <laughs> knowledge and, and, yeah. and things like that yeah. uh, in the you know the 1920s and 30s I know it's, but it's, attitudes change uh, you know, perceptions change you know the role of women certainly has changed yeah so, yeah it's true it's, it's all impossible and, until it's not until it's not <laughs> yeah I like that quote um, my next re- my next recommendation, and I have to say, Charlotte, I had no idea that Women's History Month had a theme every year. No, I didn't either until <laughs> I looked on Google. <laughs> um, so this is sort of, I would say, the opposite of healing <laughs> and and hope. Oh, I guess there is a little hope. Um, the next book I have to recommend is called Radium Girls uh, by Kate Moore. Um, it follows the uh the search for justice for these women, mostly girls, most of them were teenagers, um, who worked uh, kind of during World War One and, and right after World War One at um, a couple companies, uh, Radiant Dial in Illinois, 
and the United States Radium Corporation in New Jersey. And you can probably get an idea of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of where this is going. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, many of them, almost all of them, would, would later die of, of, radio, hmm. of radium poisoning. Um, you know, this was a very glamorous job at the time. Um, these were teen girls. Uh, they were told that the radium paint that they were painting on, you know, glow-in-the-dark clocks and, like, gun sights and things mm-hmm. like that was completely safe. They were even kind of, it was sort of insinuated that it was actually good for you, um, <laughs> that it was it was a healthy uh, and thing did, to be around. But it, but it was known that it wasn't? Is that... Or it, was it would become... It would be revealed that a lot of the the corporations had internal documents that, Knowing, that sh- yes. showed they they knew yep. mm-hmm. it was probably not safe. It was not safe. They even one of the um, companies even tested the girls um, and and never told them the results. But you know mm-hmm. had these documents that it, it's horrible that but essentially that guessed how long the girls had right. based on their exposure. Oh wow. Um, huh without without their their knowing but i know that sounds like an absolutely dismal (laughs) read and and it you know in places it is but it also it's so compelling um it reads it really reads like like true crime um but the author also really never loses sight of like kind of the human dignity Mm -hmm. of these girls and um you know their friendships their families that adored them um and also their their fight and how brave they were to stand up against these shady corporations, mm-hmm. shady doctors. <laughs> so, so during their lifetime, they realized. Yes, during yes. their lifetime, because mm-hmm. it it doesn't radium doesn't radium poisoning doesn't happen right away. It, yep. it takes some A long time, time. Yep. Um, which was another kind of complication in proving mm-hmm. that that right. was what was happening, because um, it, it could take years really right, to to, to start yeah. seeing these effects um and yeah they you know they were up against lawyers that were sort of bought out bought out by the corporations expert witnesses that that would go to these corporations and be like okay how much are you gonna pay me mm-hmm. to say nothing's wrong um and and just their their long fight for justice it's since been made into a um a play mm-hmm. and a movie hmm. on netflix i haven't seen either but yep. I've, I've heard the quite the play is quite good um but it is a very compelling read. Um, it's also a good listen. I listened to it on on audiobook. Um, and that's but radium just, girls. you know the number of books that have come out, kind of exp- really sort of exposing things that have happened in the past. I mean, we wouldn't have known about it without somebody doing the research and bringing the story to life. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Uh, Kate Moore has written a couple other history books that that also focus on women. Mm-hmm. Um, her newest one is the Woman Who Couldn't Be Silenced, which I've also heard is is, good. is very good. I have a couple of other biographies that I would like to mention just briefly, and both center on women leaders. Uh, the first is Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, which was published at the end of 2018. I found it to be very honest, uh, accessible, insightful, uh, and a good read. I'm not alone because I was kind of looking on the Internet, you know, for um, this, that, and the other thing, and it received 4.5 stars on Goodreads. And I know it was a bestseller for months, and other folks that have read it have, you know, expressed to me that they've also enjoyed it. I would encourage anyone who enjoys uh, biographies, regardless of what side of the political divide you are on, to read this book. It's about a young woman growing up in Chicago, her life at Princeton, you know, meeting Barack, their political and personal journey together. You know, it's just about people, 
and again, the title is Becoming by Michelle Obama. Yes. Uh, the other biography I'd like to uh, recommend, I always have a throwback to <laughs> another, another time. This one was published in 1975, and it's uh, titled My Story by Golda Meir. I read it years ago and perused it for this podcast. I'm, I, I may wind up rereading it because I'm really enjoying it again. But for those of you who may not know, Golda Meir was the first and only female prime minister of Israel. She was born in Kiev, uh, which is rather timely, you know, today, knowing what's happening there. But she was born in Kiev in 1898. But the family uh, emigrated to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to escape uh, the pogroms, which were uh, raids against the Jewish people that were happening in Russia. Uh, and they moved when she was a young girl. And by the time she was a young woman, she was a Zionist, which is a supporter of a homeland for the Jewish people. And when she married in 1917, as part of the agreement with her husband, Morris Meyerson, uh, he had to agree to move to Palestine, which is where uh, uh, some Jewish people were going to establish a, begin to establish a homeland. And so he agreed, and they moved in 1921. And Golda had always shown very strong leadership and organizational skills. Uh, she was valedictorian of her um, class. And as part of this burgeoning Zionist movement, she became one of its leaders. Uh, she was one of the 24 signers of the Israeli Declaration of Independence in 1948. And in 1969, she became the prime minister. So if you enjoy history along with a personal story, then I suggest you pick up My Story by Golda Meir. The other thing that struck me is Golda had an older sister, Shana. And Shana and Golda were both very determined, headstrong, bright, capable women. And um, I was reading, and it just reminded me a lot of the two Blackwell sisters. So there was a lot in common between uh, these four women. Uh, strong determination to do something, overcoming obstacles, not, not, you know, just really an undaunted courage to go forward with their convictions. So uh, there it is, My Story with Golda Meir. Excellent. Yep. I will have to read that because yep. I am one of those that really don't know the story <laughs> of Golda, <laughs> yeah. Golda Meir. Um, my last recommendation is not a book. It is a podcast episode. Um, it's one of the episodes from the More Perfect podcast. Um, listeners might be familiar with uh, Radio Lab, which is a radio program on NPR. Mm -hmm. yep. um, More Perfect is sort of a side project of uh, Jad Abirad. Um, it looks at the Supreme Court and a lot of the sort of you know major cases the Supreme Court has taken on, major precedents set, and it's a really fun um, educational podcast. Like I. Love listening to it because it's just so well packaged. It's like the episodes are about an hour. They're really conversational and witty. Um, you know, they're you're learning, but it, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and they have like some great music and stuff. It's it's a great podcast. And the one I want to point people to is called Sex Appeal, um, which is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, attempt to get kind of uh, sexual discrimination. Uh, to have the same treatment in the under constitutional terms as race discrimination, um, her attempt in the in the seventies. Uh, this happened, you know, after the Equal Rights Amendment failed. Um, it you know did not get enough mm -hmm. states to ratify um, in time. Uh, RBG and her colleagues at the ACLU's Women's Rights Projects uh, kind of looked to the courts as a sort of side door to get a lot of those 
uh, principles passed into law. Um, a lot of, you know, women's rights and and uh, the treatment of, of sexual discrimination. Um, so she had it's it's fascinating though because she had a really clever <laughs> um, strategy, which was she knew that whatever case she brought would have to be argued to an all-male Supreme Court. Um, and she knew that they, at the time, were not that receptive to, uh, you know, protections uh, against sexual discrimination. They did not see it largely as a problem. <laughs> um, so she decided to take on cases that, on their face, were sexual discrimination cases where the men <laughs> were the mm-hmm. ones being discriminated against. Smart woman. Yes. She's <laughs> a brilliant woman. And um, her the case that she took on um, that the episode delves into is really a case that boils down to fraternity brothers not being able to buy beer in Oklahoma uh, while their girlfriends could buy beer. The drinking age at the time was 21 for men. Um, and 18 for women, because the idea, of course, being that, you know, these young men were irresponsible, they were destructive. They needed time to grow up. They needed time to grow up. (laughs) And, you know, their female counterparts were, you know, thought to be more responsible, more delicate and demure, and, like, surely they would not (laughs) abuse this power to to buy alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, So she takes up their case. She she sees this as sort of a... uh, Trojan horse through which she can bring uh, a sexual discrimination case to the courts um, and make the argument that really discrimination against men and discrimination against women are, you know, two sides of the same sword. They're mm-hmm. they're is- inseparable. Like even though on this face this looks like a case that discriminates against men, it also has insidious ideas about women. Right. Um, you know, needing yep. to be more delicate and and protected and uh so she she takes it on and it's it's a great episode i don't want to you know spoil too much if you can spoil history right Right. (laughs) um but it's it's a really compelling listen uh so i recommend sex appeal and really i recommend the the more perfect podcast uh more broadly (laughs) that's 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 something i'm gonna have to put on my list just one other thing i'm gonna mention very very briefly since i know we're we're um uh, running out of time here, but I watched a documentary uh, titled Pink Saris, uh, which was produced in 2010. And I found this on Canopy, which is a video streaming service offered by the library. You can find it on our website and access it with your library card. But Pink Saris is about a charismatic woman named Sampat Paul, who was married at age 12. Um, this is in northern India. And her in-laws didn't treat her well, made her work, they beat her. But unlike a lot of other young women who were treated that way, she left. Again, this sense, I I throw her right in with the Blackwell sisters and Golden, her sister. Sampat Paul would fit right in. Those five would be really uh, five women that you wouldn't want to tangle with. Sampat Paul decided she was going to leave and she was going to speak up. And to make a long story short, she has become a voice for women who are rather powerless, and she was powerless, but she has used her her voice and her influence, um, and she has gained a following, and the women that help her all wear pink saris. They're part of a, they call themselves a gang, but not in the gang of a true sense, but a gang in terms of these women warriors standing up for each other. Uh, Again, pink saris, it's a DVD. You can find it on Canopy, 
And um, it's really rather inspirational what this uh, woman has been able to accomplish. Excellent. So, yeah. And for users that haven't used Canopy before, you can also um, download the Canopy app on your devices, yes. like your iPad, uh, yes. on a lot of your like you know Roku streaming on your TV. Uh, a, lot so. of, a lot of videos and documentaries, yes. good ones, yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, uh, before we wrap up, I also want to point people to our events calendar. Um, we have a lot of great uh, programs coming up for Women's History Month. Um, we have a program on Boston history, um, you know, different women mm-hmm. and, and influential women in Boston, um, a look at women painters throughout the centuries, and also a program on uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. So always take a look. Right, take a look at our events count. You find a lot more there as yes, well. Yeah. Yes. So happy reading until yeah. next time. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you.